I, I have a team. I'm responsible for maintaining a high level of customer satisfaction of customers in Canada. I started, in, well, I think I mentioned, starting January 2018, and I have both organizational responsibilities and direct line management for the first time in my in my corporate career. So even though in Oracle I was a, a director, um, you know, this is the first time where I'm actually leading a, a larger larger team with direct line responsibilities. And the good thing is, is that I was set up for success at Workday, or have been set up, because I was provided with some the the best or the world class management training, some very extensive training. And this made sure that I understood and was able to embrace our company culture and our core values because I want to provide the best possible environment for, for my team and for, uh, for all my coworkers. Welcome to the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. My name is Chris Thompson, your host of the show and the head coach of the Student Works Management Program. This is a show dedicated to young and ambitious entrepreneurs and ultimately the leaders of tomorrow. Each week, we will bring you an inspiring interview or message to help you create the future you know you deserve. Let's get started. Hi, leaders. Super excited that you're joining me here on the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. I know we've spoken quite often about, you know, sales being an awesome start and frankly, a lot of times conclusion to people's careers. Uh, certainly a lot of our top operators ended, end up going in that direction. It's a way where the results economy, where someone can prove to be a top performer. And so one of the things I'm doing this week is rebroadcasting one of our top performing alumni, a multi-year operator, a business coach with us who took a while to sort of get into one of the huge you know, SaaS organizations, spent almost 13 years at Oracle and was a director level, started in sales, sales consulting, and then uh, moved to Workday, another enormous CRM organization. You know, And he talks about that transition. And one of the reasons that you know, called me to sort of rebroadcast this one is I know this past summer, he became the senior principal managing partner um, at at Workday. Um, And I was just so excited to see that. You know, I called, you know, Simon uh, to congratulate him beyond sort of noting it on LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, I was able to sort of find out what on top of just that title change, what that meant in terms of of compensation. And it's it's incredible and role and, uh, just so fantastic to see one of our alumni doing so well. And, you know, again, I wasn't looking for this, but, you know, Simon just shared, there's just no way he would be where he is unless he bumped into us at, you know, Trent and then later McMaster University, uh, two of the schools that he went to when he was a student and learning the things that he learned so early on in his career that are still making a difference today. So I know you're going to love this podcast and take the list lessons that Simon offers uh, for you. When, as you're starting to think about, hey, how can I have the type of success that I want to in my career? How can I go and really strive forward? And you know that what we're looking for is amazing young leaders. So, if you know anyone, send them to studentworks.com, share this podcast, or shoot me an email, cthompson at studentworks.com. Have a fantastic day. And thanks so much for tuning in. Simon, thank you very much. Really, really pleased uh, that you were able to make it on the pod around your your very, very busy schedule. Glad to be here. Thank you, Chris. Uh, no, you're welcome. So, so Simon, I know you've had really an amazing journey with a number of adventures along the way uh, post-student works. Why don't you start off by telling us about your life growing up? Absolutely. My childhood could be summed up as a blend of three different movies, Cinderella Man, Glass Castle, and Pursuit of Happiness. I do have to apologize. There's probably a lot of listeners out there that may not get the references. Right. You are missing out on some, some great classics. And uh, so it might be more appropriate to, to quote Drake. You know, started from the bottom and now we're here. And, you know, if you look at the, the history and, and uh, you know, kind of growing up, it's, it's, uh, I think it's okay to own it. Um, you know, my mom and my stepfather were, were very poor. We were often living at half the, uh, the poverty line. And that, of course, you know, affected some motivations and behaviors and sort of look on, uh, outlook on uh, life. Right. People you know, go to visit people's homes, and if, you know, if they could afford paper towels, to me, they were rich, uh, just right. to put that in context. And we would move around every year when, uh, when the rent was overdue, sometimes leaving in the middle of the night. My, uh, my stepfather had a lot of mental health issues, wasn't able to work or, or, or generate a lot of uh, income. And uh, there was a lot of physical and emotional abuse growing up. And by grade nine, it was, my, it was in my ninth school. So really moved around quite a bit, had to learn how to make new friends pretty quickly. 
Right. At the time, I grew up with three siblings, and then later on, through uh, other marriages, as you know, ended up with uh, three more siblings. Okay. With all of that, though, I knew early on that this would not be my life, and that I could escape, and I had to start with uh, really good marks at uh, school. Very early, I had a, a goal of wanting to be a doctor. For me, that was uh, it was had medicine, and that was for me that was my escape route through school. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, moving on to your teenage years, what was your life like as a result of you know your childhood experiences? I really became a super super achiever. I had a lot of different extracurriculars going on. Arguably, probably too many. I was working really hard to get out of the house. Again, part of uh, escaping my. Uh, the stepfather did take every penny I made, so I wasn't wasn't working for the money because the money was going to pay for his cigarette habits. But I still enjoyed working and enjoyed getting uh, getting out. I got to a point where actually my last year of high school, I moved into my own apartment and I was working three different part time jobs. And while I was working three part time jobs, my average went from eighty five percent to ninety percent. I just just to give you an idea of how hard I worked, I was um, working as an ambulance dispatcher. I worked in an art gallery. Selling, uh, selling art, and I worked in a bakery doing um, cleaning, working on the cash register, working at the front um, at the front uh, part of the bakery. I went to the National Science Fair, won honorable mention. I was able to get a full scholarship to uh, Trent University. But at the same time, I just had a lot of, I'd uh, say, anger issues, and and use the term, you know, sort of excuse the phrase, but full of piss and vinegar, the very very short uh, short temper. Um, so I was working hard, but I just I was just raging at the world. Yeah, yeah, no. And I certainly one of the things that I certainly connect to back in the day was just, you know, just your, your, your energy and your full plate. You know, that was something that certainly I recall, you know, always is just, you know, Simon was was doing stuff, right? So, uh, so how did you discover student works? And uh, uh, how did how did things change for you? I came across a flyer. I was at Trent University at the time and came across a flyer and I was just absolutely intrigued. I had, uh, um, towards the end of my uh, my first year, I had lost the scholarship for the second year. I just couldn't keep the marks up. I just wasn't having fun. Mm. You know, Trent and me were, were kind of oil and water and just right. a combination of this, the resources, the teachers, and, you know, and, and just things just didn't, didn't work out. I had no place to go for the summer. I needed to cover the cost of living expenses to save up for the following year. And I also had uh, car expenses. So right. I need to make a lot of money very quickly, and I was looking around different jobs. But you know, then you really look just looking at minimum wage jobs, and I realized very quickly that I was going to be able to have it all with Student Works, or potentially have it all. It really good income, no boss, someone had to teach me how to run a business, and it, to me, it looked like a pretty low risk uh, way to um, to get in, get my feet on the ground, and and do something in terms of running a business. And right. It was a very exciting prospect compared to uh, to a boring job. Yeah, no, I I I, I hear you. And yeah. what was that? What was that? What was that like? Was it like in just in terms of um, not just like your experience at Student Works? Yeah, no, it was it was good. So um, it was offered uh, Peterborough as a, as a territory, and um, it was actually it was funny. I loved having the sort of that label, the title, or identity, and that was that was pretty pretty fun. So you know, before I met my uh, my wife, you know, my roommate would go to the bars, and and he was a pilot, so he would uh, he would start off by saying, "I'm a pilot," and and uh, you know, this is Simon. He runs a painting business, and I guess I literally was his wingman at that time. So right. it was. Uh, I love the identity. I love the you know who um, who I was and what I was doing at that time. That being said, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, even even today. You know, the first job I took on, it was a project that I just simply wasn't ready for. Probably took you know bit off more than I could chew, but I did survive. Got to the end, was able to complete the uh, complete the project and move on to others. I was working really long hours. I was living day by day and hour by hour. There were you know the first first month or so, I was working 120 hours per week. I, right. I should say that's not normal. I don't want to scare people off, but just given the situation I, I had, where literally I was just trying to make money to put gas in my car, you know, living off a day and, and food budget, bit of an unusual situation. You know, other people have a little bit of resources coming in. I started with absolutely nothing, so I put the hours that I had to put in to um, to, to get the business uh, started. I was very immature when I started, and uh, of course, this was something that um, you know that matured me very quickly. But the good thing is that as the summer progressed, I got my feet under me. I started making good income, good money, and uh, I believe I was something like the number two rookie that year for uh, for sales. Yeah, and and the one thing just and and like you said, for our young leaders, not many people start businesses in the state that Simon was in, and it's just a really just an enormous hats off to you, Simon. Like it really, really is, and I think you know that obviously, you know, like um, uh, and to be able to start a business with really no safety net. You know, no parental involvement, no, no help, no, oh, I've got a friend and he let me some money. 
because that's how businesses largely get started when you're young. And and certainly, um, uh, I know when I got started, you know, um, let me think. I, I'm, I'm sure, I, like, well, first of all, I knew if there was a problem, mom and dad would help out. So I can't, like, because I had re- run some previous businesses and I had some capital, but I knew that there was just a, a spot, like, okay. And and I'd say that most of our operators have that, Simon. And, and, I, and I know you know that because you knew you were, you were with us a long time. And, and it really is just, just in my mind, just speaks so much more to what you accomplished. And not, no surprise as well that you put that much more work into it. Because literally, it was life and death, or or I don't know, you know, no one's going to die in Canada, but it's it's you know going out and just making it happen. I can remember one one story from a from an old alumnus who was kind of in a similar situation. I remember him telling me, um, and this was after the fact. I didn't know he was so hard up. He goes, "Yeah, I go to no frills and I put my hand in the containers and eat." I'm like, "Wow, like that's just so tough." Um, and uh, and and you know, again, it just speaks to. Uh, just who you are as a person and as a leader to sort of get through that. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I guess, the topic of grit. Yes, grit. Yes, yes. Yeah. Ange- Angela Duckworth, grit. It's a book we both would recommend to you um, about what, um, you know, you know, just, just you know, successful people just are willing to overcome things and just kind yeah. of look at that longer term. And, and you know, there's, there's one thing about, I, I was fortunate enough to have really amazing role models in my life. And so to me, that made me want to emulate them. And I was also able to model them and play a role model from. For you, I know you had a, okay, I am not going to play that game, right? I will not be that. And I am yeah. going to look for other role models and I'm going to go in another direction. And so, so again, you know, for for, um, for people, there's, there in, in our young leaders, that you, you know, you may have one or other. Or, or some something in between, and largely as well, everything's something in between because because there's some things uh, you know there's always redeemable things about everyone, and then there's always even very very successful people. They've got things that don't work either, <laughs> so so we get to determine these things right and make our own choices through life, right? Absolutely. And at that time, I had uh, some guy by the name of Chris Thompson and uh, his management yeah. team to yeah. uh, provide a you know where I wanted to go and yes. uh, the kind of I wanted to be. So I appreciate uh, all the. Help and support at that time. It was kind of neat because at the end of the uh, at the end of the first year, you know, during that summer, I actually met uh, the girlfriend, now my wife of uh, twenty years. This uh, this right. summer, I, I, I still think that the decision to marry me was when she saw me win the Student Works Award at the end of the uh, end of the summer. <laughs> well, that's great. So, moving yeah. on to your first jobs job experience, what was it like? You know, what was that transition like? Yeah. So then uh, the. the Last part-time job that I had was working on a help desk for an internet company. Now, back then, it was even before there was even such a thing as a, a web browser. It just it just come out, and there was nobody that knew how to do the job, so I didn't have to have any skills. You had to be trained on the job, and but it really kind of gave me a whole insight into this thing called the uh, the internet. Yeah. And in parallel, in my last year at McMaster, when somebody asked me why I wanted to be a doctor, I no longer knew why. It was for me. It was just I was so fixated on that. And then I had to really step back and say, okay, what do I really want now with who I am and the experience that I have? So between all the business experience with student works and with what I saw as a potential on the internet, I was very much on a different different path. So right. my first full-time job was selling the services of a mainframe programmer, which is a professional services company. And this was ahead of the, the year 2000 pending apocalypse. You know, Some of the people reading this might have just been born that year, but that was back when you know, a lot of computer scientists were afraid of the world falling apart. And it might have if they had not you know, put in the billions of dollars of, of uh, coding changes that they made. And the company that, at that time, they, uh, they'd hired a, a new cohort, a, a new round of 12 different sales reps. The first 10 got fired, couldn't meet their sales targets. Then I got fired. And then the last guy finally got fired. So none of us made it through, uh, you know, through over a year. Right. They, uh, the problem was that they couldn't hire programmers because the programmers were in such big demand. So I could get the orders from customers, but I couldn't fill the orders. And, uh, you know, the only... Way I felt a little bit better afterwards. The company you know, collapsed afterwards, so it wasn't just me. No, no, well, no, well, no kidding. It wasn't just you. You're you're making sales the company can't deliver. I don't think that's a sales problem. <laughs> yeah, it was tough. It was tough. Um, but you know, it still was. Uh, it was. It was. It was hard. On it was hard you know, psychologically. But you know, I did. I licked my wounds. Got up right away and you know moved to uh, the call center industry for some outsourced uh, inbound program. So companies like at the time, like you know CMHC, for example, would would uh, hire us to take calls on behalf of CMHC to answer questions. And uh, I had some really interesting projects there. For example, 
I was part of the team that built the 150-seat help desk from scratch for Sprint Canada's dial-up service, their very first internet service. It was a Canada-wide uh, launch. And then uh, Research in Motion uh, built the help desk for device that was eventually called the BlackBerry. So I, you know, before the actual BlackBerry now, I had the little little handheld device I got to play with before anyone even knew about it. And, uh, so and some really and good, for, good experiences. Yeah, go and for our young leaders, basically the BlackBerry was the iPhone of its day. So it was literally had enormous market share, was was the leading phone um, in the world uh, before the, uh, the iPhone blew it out of the water. And now, and now really the BlackBerry has a very small, largely security uh, function in the marketplace for really, really secure roles and has kind of transformed themselves. And it just shows again how, 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 how technology companies just have a very, very small, small time unless they're, they're continue to stay ahead of their competitors. Absolutely. So, uh, so yeah. So what, what happened after RIM and, uh, okay, and so the BlackBerry? After, yeah. Well, so as I was working on, on those different accounts, I just gave you a couple of examples. I really fell in love with the concept of business intelligence and, and reporting and analytics. And I was building reporting packages and dashboards for customers and they loved it. They loved to see the metrics and they loved to see, you know, hey, they're spending so much money. What are they getting in return? And um, how many calls are coming in? How are we converting leads? And uh, But the company I was working for, they just didn't see the value in it. So I decided to, uh, you know, pull the plug and uh, to leave. Uh, you know, I just didn't see a future for myself in that company. Right. And again, that company collapsed soon after I left too. Well, well, and no surprise because again, to me, that is just so critical. That's where the world's gone. Is is you know, again, for our leaders, so much of uh, marketing in the past, as an example, people really didn't know. I'm spending marketing dollars. I don't know why I'm getting business. We think it's working, right? Where now so much of the money um, a company spend is very tactical, very scientific. And here's the return on investment for these dollars spent. So, you know, you were really at the forefront and other organizations, obviously, really getting in there and showing people what the return on their investment is. Absolutely. And by the way, I never um, I never quit my job. and intentionally was unemployed. I always made sure I had another job before I switched. Um, I think that's an important thing for, for people to know is that I was always, even though I decided to leave, once I make a decision, you know, made a decision to leave, I was interviewing with other jobs. So one of the interviews for the next job, which was very interesting, is that I, it started off, the guy sat down with me, it was at the end of the day, and he said, look, you got 15 minutes because the recruiter forced me to meet with you. I don't know why you're here. And I got the job. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> it was it was my first uh, it was my first IT job, and I was managing the company data warehouse for uh, for reporting and analytics. You know, then uh, it was good. It was really good experience, good training. They treat me well, but I I did get bored fairly quickly. And again, I just didn't see any career path. I was probably going to be doing the same job, same thing for a lot of years. And uh, and and again, that's when I started looking somewhere else. And then I found a consulting firm that offered me a position where I was able to double my income. Right. And, um, and then the uh, you know. After I left, then then the company where I was managing the data warehouse, they they got bought out and acquired um, by uh, by you know, by competitors soon after. Right. Okay. Okay. And then what happened there? The consulting firm that I went to, they had put me on the road. I was on the road for about uh, six days a week. I was flying home in some cases, flying home Saturday morning and flying out Sunday night. Right. It, um, but it was it was just amazing amazing experience. I was doing everything from consulting, programming, training. Doing a lot of different different uh, different works. Now I got a lucky break in that there was a division of GE that had gone through alphabetically in this company. The first letter started with a C, and it was the first person to answer the phone. And they said, "Just send someone over." And so I thought I was going in just to do some low-level programming, and they said, "No, no, no. You're here to uh, run a team. You've got a million-dollar budget. You need to build a, a data warehouse from scratch, and you're going to be leading a team of ten other contractors." And um, you know, go just you know, go go do it. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, okay, <laughs> sure. Uh, so that was my first uh, leadership role, and uh, and that was a tough, that was a, a really great experience, but it was challenging because now I had ten other contractors that were um, all kind of competing in a ten, you know. So I had to, it was like hurting hurting cats because everybody was out for themselves. Um, but uh, in the end, we did deliver, and it was a, a really great uh, great project. The only thing is that um, after that, and at some other gigs, but I just the six, seven days a week of travel was was killing me. And my first job, my first child was uh, was born. Um, I had actually made the decision that if I didn't have another job, I actually was going to quit. I was prepared to, and that was where I was willing to draw the line. Right. Um, but luckily, I was able to find another job in time, and I was in. I landed in another consulting firm, and um, 
um, and that's specialized in insurance reporting analytics for, for, for insurance companies. And I was hired to lead a team to implement a replacement package or pre-built data warehouse at, at Aviva Insurance. And um, I learned a lot. I made a lot of mistakes, but um, it was a really, really, really good experience. And we, we did get them live and you know, it's still there today, as far as I know. Right. And that I was able to learn pre-sales and not just Aviva, but also um, the other jobs or other customers for that consulting firm. I was able to learn project management. I was able to you know, lead in a, a very matrix environment where nobody really clearly reports to everybody. But you still have to lead a team. Right. And by the way, I should mention that uh, the I took the estimating experiences that I learned at StudentWorks, and I was able to translate that into a methodology for estimating jobs, implementing software. It was, it right. was amazing how everything I learned in terms of, of how you quote a, a painting job it, it actually translated to estimating software implementations. Right, right. And I can see again a lot of a lot of what you were doing early in your career was consulting, right? So it's learning to speak to customers, learning to to understand what's happening. And and so many of our successful operators have have had space in consulting just because it's such a great space to really, again, learn from a bunch of different industries. And and you know, some of our some of our alumni, as you know, because you know a lot of our alumni, you know, find really, you know, a lot of times really fast success. But for you, it took a while. Like again, you know, making good progress, but not like the next part of your career would be, you know, where you join one of the worldwide best companies in the world, Oracle, you know. So why don't you tell us about, you know, your journey and experience with Oracle? Absolutely. So just a little bit of information about Oracle. Not everybody you know, may oh, have heard of them. Thank but... you. Yes, because yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're one of the biggest companies in the world, but a lot of our leaders won't know who Oracle is. Yes. If you're, yeah, if you're not in the software industry, you might not know, but they are the largest database company and, and they have a variety of different applications and technologies. They've got about $10 billion in revenue and, and roughly about 137,000 employees. I was actually originally hired at, at Siebel. I got tapped on the shoulder. Actually, I had two different job interviews and it was it was so amazing to have i ended up um choosing siebel and then nine months later siebel was acquired by oracle so that was how i i got into oracle siebel was a large company oracle's an even bigger you know big fish even smaller fish and uh, oracle was really my first large corporation job or big big corporation job and um and i worked my way up through the ladder i was originally a, a senior sales consultant and, and doing pre-sales which meant i would do technical demonstrations and presentations you know, they would get a lead. I would come in, find out what they wanted. I would map some kind of solution. I would demonstrate it, talk about it, and then as soon as the customer said yes, I would bail out. As soon as I heard yes, uh, I'd let the sales rep come in and, and close the the deal. Right. And with that, uh, it got promoted from a senior sales consultant to a principal sales consultant to a master principal sales consultant. I was very much on track for a, the distinguished level, which would have been the highest level uh, within uh, within the company, and I won a number of awards um, awards along the way. What in that, I also co-authored a, a book, and it sold a surprisingly high number of copies. Um, I just actually saw my desk guy. I just got another royalty check. And I don't know why, because the software was obsolete four or five years ago, but I'm still getting royalty checks from the book. And that gave me that level of expertise and the brand recognition. And, um, and, and during that time, I would only work with the best sales reps and work with the largest customers. And, but I had to earn that privilege. You, you, right. you wanted to be wanted or be asked for by these different sales reps. So I had this reputation that, you know, you bring me in, I'm going to help close that, you know, five, $10 million, uh, you know, $10 million deal. Right. So with that, I was, um, you know, while I was on track for the distinguished level, I got tapped on the shoulder to be um, moved into a director level within the development group. And there was an elite, um, elite escalation team. And the product that I was responsible for was I was moved in after I was promoted to director was was killed. So I both basically woke up one morning to find out that I was a global expert in something that was no, no, you know, now obsolete. I was making really good money, but I had no skills because the product was now dead. So overnight, I had to rebrand my skills and reinvent myself while not taking a big hit of my income. I had you know mortgage, family, you know, a lot of, lot of people to take care of. And the way I did this was I had to quickly jump onto the cloud computing bandwagon. And I can explain that in a minute. Um, Oracle was starting to make this pivot from software that was on-premise to now this cloud uh, cloud software direction. And I was able to recover. But in then, it was a very tough recovery because the boss who had brought me in, he left the company, transferred me to another boss, and he left the company. And I was kind of in limbo for about a year and a half. So I had to learn a new technology, learn a new product, 
figure out some way of showing value and not seen as somebody who could be expendable or, or laid off. And I was able to do this by learning the new technology and by keeping busy and finding other um, customers that were in distress. And I would work with them in their escalations and working with dozens of internal teams to rescue the situation for, for everyone and bring it to a, a satisfactory solution. That's amazing. Hey, leaders. I hope you are enjoying this podcast. As we approach and surpass 300 episodes, well over 95% of the leaders that we have interviewed have been alumni of the Student Works Management Program. It has been an honor to participate in their development over the years. Starting now and only for the fall months, we will be on campus at universities and colleges in Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down the path of entrepreneurship. If you are interested in being a leader in our program or know someone who does, please go to the show notes and hit Student Works and get sent to a landing page to apply. There is a bold Student Works that you can hit to go to a landing page to apply. Thanks so much. Back to the show. And again, for our leaders, like this is the future. Well, this has been the past. It's the present and it'll be the future. Technology will, you know, uh, dramatically benefit some and hurt others. Right. And so, so, you know, you can take it personally and, and, and I'm sure maybe there were some moments that Simon did, but, but instead of taking it personally, a lot of times he just got into action said, hey, how can I go create great results? Because that's all the world cares about is how do I create value? You know, so so he saw opportunities, you know, so he saw clients in need. That's really clients in distress, clients in need. Let's fix those. And using the, I know, I know, because, you know, uh, Simon shared about this with me, uh, you know, in conversations uh, before the podcast is he had developed a great relationship network before. So he was able to sort of work through it with them and, and, and have great conversations with them to solve these things. So, so again, um, I want people to hear, you know, that these things could happen to me, you know, and they will happen to me. Like things are going to change and I need to be able to dance, you know, and find value. So that's awesome. So, so what about cloud computing? Yeah, absolutely. And just, uh, just before I answer cloud computing, Please. just one, one last thing I want to mention is that I think there's a direct relationship between what I did with StudentWorks and the entrepreneurial spirit and, and learning to be adaptable and, and sort of the resilience I had, I had learned uh, and all of the skills in terms of, of account management, customer relationship management, and everything I'd learned. It, I think there's a direct connection between who I was coming out of StudentWorks to the type of person that I needed to be to be really successful at Oracle, especially in those last couple of years when there was a lot of technology changes. 100%. It's, I, you know, it's the term entrepreneurship, you know, yes. and, and, and really as well, like, you know, like, you've got to be thinking, I always love the thought, you know, at student works, you would have had 100 clients, maybe. So I, I'm selling, you know, 150 clients, I'm selling to 150 clients. Well, you're selling to one client, Oracle. And on the other hand, really, what the, what you're doing is, is you're, you're really generating profit and results for Oracle so that they can pay your salary and more, right? And make make everybody's business work. So, so yeah. Absolutely. So to your question about uh, cloud computing, and I think this is important to understand what I've been doing the last number of years. In in the, I would say in the you know old days when I was in pre-sales, customers would spend tens of millions of dollars in software. There was a time when they would get it on, you know, DVD or disc, then they would download it. But it was a one-off purchase and it would take years to implement, um, let alone you know, upgrade. And then they, they would have to start all over again. So they'd get it up, you know, live and running in, in production. And then it's okay, now there's a new version. We got to start all over again for the uh, for the upgrade. Customers would also have to have their own data centers, their own computers, their own uh, infrastructure, their own app, and their applications were, were heavily customized. And this made it even harder and more expensive to uh, to to upgrade because they were so so customized. And now, what's different is that customers are simply provided a, a, a URL, like a like a link, and the cloud providers pretty much take care of that whole IT footprint. It's a, it's a complete solution. And right. cloud computing, there's really three. Let's keep this really simple. There's actually three major 
layers to cloud computing. You've got the infrastructure as a service or IS, and that's the hardware, the, the computers, uh, the networking to connect all the computers together. Then you've got the next layer up, which is platform as a service or PaaS. And those are like the, the databases store the data. You've got all the different uh, technology tools um, to, uh, to connect. And then the security to make sure that you, you don't have any kind of uh, unauthorized access. And then you have the software as a service or the SaaS, which are, you know, for example, like at the applications, this is what the end users see, physically see in their screens for things like human resources and finance and, and so on. Right, right. In the, the revenue model, which, which this is why it's really different. The stock uh, valuations are very different. The revenue model is different. So instead of, you know, hey, what have you done this quarter? And now you got to start all over again with the new pipeline next quarter. Now you can actually have these subscriptions or long-term contracts. You can accurately forecast your revenues long-term. And what that means is that now you can smooth out the wins. You're not dependent on these big, massive wins. It's, it, you, know, you can build up your, your, your customers over, uh, over time, and you're less dependent on um, you, you know, these, I would say, superstar sales reps to, to come in and close a you know, $100 million deal. What it also means is that from a customer perspective is that they don't have to outlay these really large capital expenditures. They don't have to go build data centers. So we have a lot of smaller customers and smaller startups that they're able to very quickly take advantage of these, this, uh, the software because they don't have to go build their own, their own data center. And the valuations of the company are a lot higher because when you can see the future and you can see the revenue that's coming in, because it's forecasted based on longer-term contracts through a subscription, then the stock market um, prices tend to, the uh, valuations tend to be a lot, a lot higher. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then, so just a couple of things to kind of round out what's cloud computing is you're, you're looking at a lot more configuration rather than customization. So you can upgrade a lot faster. And, um, and, and really what it means though, is that the, the cloud computing companies, they have to provide a very, very heavy investment up front. So Microsoft and Amazon, it's, it's just amazing how much money they've had to put in to establish the, uh, the business, but then they can go after, you know, you see the news, like, you know, the Pentagon, you know, the Pentagon is looking at uh, making a large purchase. So, um, and what it means from a customer perspective is that they get much faster deployments because all the hard stuff's been done up front ahead of time. The tricky thing though, and this is the, the where, where I come in and kind of the role that I've come in the last number of years is that it's also a lot easier for customers to leave. They're not locked in. And that's why there's um, a developing need for the notion of a customer success team. And every software company now, or most do, who have a subscription model, have a customer success team to make sure that there's no reason for the customer to leave at the time of the subscription, uh, when the, you know, the renewal. And the, the, the great thing, and I was just, again, I've just been so blessed over, over the years, is I had a front row seat to this pivot from the old model to the new model when I was at, uh, at Oracle. And I was also very lucky that I was in sales development and cloud operations, all within the large, you know, the huge company. So I really, really had a front row seat to seeing how this whole sausage was made in, and then. And being able and being able to, again, see the client and what the benefits are for the client, because there are, there are enormous benefits for the client to see what the benefits for the, for the organization and how they can get better, better revenue and then what the risks are. And, and by the way, the risks are, are really, and I know you know this, the risks are for both. The risks are for the organization who has to go move, and it's for the for the organization uh, that actually loses the customer. Because you know, really, what you want to have as a as a customer is, I want my supplier to consistently deliver amazing results that I'm happy to pay for, right? And that gets paid for because I'm getting great value and I'm able to service all my customers. And that's why you know, again, these these great companies, you know, uh, are able to retain their customers because they're providing really great value. Right, so so that's again a really really great insight around uh, you know Oracle uh, and and your experience there. So thank you. Um, so so I know I know you know one of the things about having a successful career is is you know there's having a successful career, but also how do I make good financial decisions otherwise? Otherwise, and and I I know you've also uh, you know had a successful real estate career. Can you tell us about that journey? Absolutely. And uh, nice thing is um, that. As I was doing it in parallel, I don't think it was overly planned, but I'll tell you the story because it's really interesting how, it, how it's turned out. So before um, Siebel and Oracle, I was able to buy a small rundown bungalow. This is just for our personal residence. We had a $5,000 down payment <laughs> back when you can, you can do that before things right. like, uh, dramatically. Uh, that, was our, that was our way in. It, we had to put a lot of work and money into it. The, the house was nearly condemned. There was no furnace. There was a wood stove in the, the basement. And uh, when my wife and I were away from at work all day, we'd come home. The house was cold. <laughs> Uh -huh. um, the first rainfall, there was literally the, the way the, the, the rain was running off the roof was being directed directly into the basement. We had a flooding coming in. Um, so we, we really started with 
the, the, the bare possible, uh, you know, I know some people start with condo, we start with this rundown uh, bungalow. <laughs> yeah. But when we, we sold, so the good thing is we sold, we didn't, um, we didn't make money per se, but we did break even and we recovered the money we put into it. So we put a lot of money into it. We didn't lose any money. We did recover it all. And that gave us capital leverage for the, for the next, uh, next thing. I, I did, I purchased a couple of investment properties in, uh, in, in Hamilton. And um, at the time, there just wasn't any growth. I know things have changed quite a bit in Hamilton. Uh, it tried to make it work for a few years. It was just able to barely break even. But I learned a lot. One of the things I learned there is that if you're going to be in the rental market, typically people make their money off the capital gains. It's, it's pretty tough to be cash flow neutral or cash flow positive. In the meantime, some people can make it work, um, but that's that's a tough thing. And for most people, make it work. It's over. It's a long. It's a long term game for the capital gains. And um, and this was all before the housing bubble started. Interest rates hadn't started to fall yet. And you know what I saw was that as interest rates fell, property values went uh, went up because people could borrow more money. And um, and then on the personal side again for personal residents, I met a, a really good real estate agent. Her name is Len Blot. We've I've done more than twelve transactions with her over the years. And she helped us uh, sell our little bungalow, and then helped us find the next uh, next few houses. So in each case, we started making a good profit. Uh, you know, it's great how in Canada there's uh, no no tax on on a personal residence. We've been there for each house for a couple of years, so it was all uh, it was all tax free income. Uh, one house that we purchased, we uh, I did notice that in the basement there was a bed, and I could tell that there was distress in the family. Uh, you, you know, we we we. We basically decided to lowball hard. There was something happening, you know, and the, the family was breaking down. It was right around Christmas time, so the worst time to sell. And you could tell, you know, that there was there was a deal to be had, right. and um, and so we 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 came in lowballed hard and we was able to uh, to purchase the place. And uh, we would do the minimum renovation. So like in that place, for example, I think I had to replace the toilets, rip down wallpaper, did some basic painting, just do minimal cosmetic stuff. You know, all of that we did ourselves, um, and uh, and and did quite well from that place. The only catch, though, is that we were living slightly above our means. One of the things I've, I've learned over the years, and uh, so what happened is that we would, uh, you know, we're making money off the house, but it was almost like we were pre-spending it because we're living a little bit above our means. So we would sell the house to pay off debt. We take the the, the, the profit, and then we start on the new house. Now, to be fair, you know, single income, four kids in Oakville is kind of a tough combination. I know, sure. first world problems, um, but it was a combination of I, I had to make more money. And I was making in my corporate world, uh, corporate job to, uh, you know, to pay for the expenses of living in Oakville and the kids. And that's how we did it, right? Between the corporate job and, and making money in, uh, in real estate. Right. Okay. So no, then, no. Uh, yeah, so then we, the next uh, thing that happened was looking at Realtor.ca one day and we found the current house where we live now. And I remember at the time it was just a massive amount of money. It was a, it was a big gamble, big risk, but it was really that estate home that I had always wanted to live in. And my, my wife and I would always want to live in. It was a real dream uh, opportunity for us. Right. So we took the risk, took the gamble, and we worked with our agent. We realized that the house had been on the market for nine months with no offers. This was right around 2008 when you know, the housing market in the U.S. tank. Things it was were, really you know, tough. Yeah. It, was, it was tough, yeah. So we were able to, to negotiate for a, for a few different days in lowballed. And the kids, finally, we moved in. The kids called it the big house. And right. uh, our plan was, really was to, to be here forever. And, um, you know, but in hindsight, I didn't really understand just how expensive the maintenance would be to, uh, you know, to keep up with the Joneses. And it's taking up with the Joneses. I mean, literally, they're just, they live down the street. And, uh, you know, as you see everyone else around, everyone else around us, they've got, you know, brand new cars, they've got brand new kitchens every five years. And, um, you know, so we held back and, and we were always uh, very careful. And, uh, but, you know, it's still, the debt still kind of creeps up over, uh, over the years. But there was a, there was a much bigger um, difference in terms of, the capital gain versus um, you know the income they were earning. So while this was going up, I realized it was almost like a like a never ending uh, never ending battle. And I was watching the housing prices uh, come uh, you know go up, and, and I saw an exponential um, increase over over time with the housing bubble. And that triggered an idea, kind of a crazy idea. Well, what if we took our house, we sold it to an investor who would rent the house back to us, and we would take the income from the capital gains to pay for the rent. So basically, we could live in our own in our own house rent free. And, you know, people thought I was crazy. My wife thought I was crazy. But after a few months, um, we'd come back from a family trip to Florida and um, over March break. And, and she asked me um, to go over the numbers again with her. And um, we did really well. We didn't get quite as much as we we're hoping, but we still did very well. And actually, I calculated our return on investment on the down payment on this house from eight years earlier was about a thousand percent. And that's an example of, of leverage. And um, and so we did the the mature adult thing. We invested our money for over a year. We lowered our cash flow, uh, sleeping way better at night. 
I basically had 10 months of rent covered. I wanted 12 months. I got 10 months, so it was pretty close. And it was just a very boring, diversified, you know, conservative investment portfolio. Everything was spread out and had a good investment advisor, uh, which of course I did a ton of research on to make sure I found the right person. And um, and like I said, our rent was a lot lower than the cost to own. And uh, we just got lucky. We kind of uh, sold at the uh, at the peak. Um, but then just you know, getting getting older, looking towards retirement, looking at legacy, we got a little restless. I wanted to spend a little bit of money on a on a property to set up a hunting camp. Um, then my wife, uh, when she found out my plan, she said, "Well, I want a dock to jump off of." So we tried to find something that met both of our dreams, and uh, that was a fun joint project for a period of time. I was I spent uh, last summer researching properties and, and found that you know in cottage country there's no such thing as a large parcel with deep water entry. It's all been developed up north in, in Ontario, but I didn't didn't stop me from trying. I went from lake to lake. I would read hundreds of pages each weekend of, of technical specs on on the, the lakes and all the property bylaws and try to figure out what can you do, can you build, can you set up a trailer, you know what what are the what are the rules. I would uh, go with my kids and we would drop in a kayak and I would go to the end of where you're allowed to set up a dock and I'd measure the distance if you could jump into swimming. And so we uh, we got a, we realized we needed a, a specialist. We got a, a, a real estate agent who specialized in cottage sales. Right. And she found uh, this 15 acre cottage with a 60 foot Canadian shield rock face in the backyard. Right. Over the secret garden. We just fell in love with the place. Uh, you know, places like that only come up every you know, 10, 20 years. Right. And, um, and that just kind of tossed the idea of, just buying land, let's go buy a building. But we got spanked badly. It was just, it was quite a wake up call. With you know, somebody just came in from Toronto, much deeper pockets. Um, so we lost that place. But we, um, but by then our 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 we were, our goal had changed, right. and our um, and what we we're looking for from a quality of life and lifestyle changed. So there was a private island on the same lake with a um, a very large cottage. Everything was in great shape, kind of turnkey, and we right. went to look at it just for fun. And we fell in love with it. We lowballed really hard. And the lesson learned is that when you buy property, you make money when you buy, not when you sell. Yes. We weren't trying to squeeze the owners. Um, you, you know, not like the other story I mentioned earlier. We just we, we just said, hey, look, this is just all we have. We're willing to liquidate all of our yeah. investments, all of our non you know non registered investments. And we it was we just offered it. They accepted to our surprise. And we got lucky. We we did it just before the crash in September. So uh, again, just it's another um, you know, not not that I was trying to time it. But I was staying in touch with the market and I had, you know, it, it, you got to know what's going on out there and read the news. Right. So, yes, we gave up our registered savings, um, but now we have this legacy asset for future generations. And um, and, and now we're just kind of rebuilding that, that retirement fund, which I've got lots of runway still to uh, to do. And the key thing is that while I'm still working really, really hard, I'm probably for the, I'd say for the first time, really enjoying life in a way I've never been able to before and really having a lot of fun, having a lot of adventures for uh, for my family. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, because because again, there's always a balance between, you know, saving money and then also experiencing today, right? So there's always that balance. And, you know, and, and you know, again, like you see, uh, you know, the, the leaders can listen. It's like Simon at times was maybe, hey, you know, having a, a tough time on, you know, you know, sort of paying for what four kids uh, and a family cost in Oakville versus, you know, now it's like, okay, hey, I got that right balance. And it's, and it's, it really is a challenge, and certainly have similar experiences as well about how to manage that and 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 uh, and, and take it away. And with hard work, obviously, as you you know, you kind of manage your your career successfully. Then obviously, you you manage the you know one of the biggest things that you control, which is the amount of income you make every year. So, mm-hmm. so I know you've you're you're you've moved over to Workday, just a in you know world another world class firm. How's life different for you now? It's having a lot of fun. Awesome. Uh, that, that's a, that's the number number one thing. It's um, probably having the most fun I've ever had. Um, you know, just because of of the the environment is just is just a great place to be. To give you a bit of information about Workday, it's um, it's a leading provider of enterprise cloud applications, and so we deliver financial management, human capital management, planning, and analytics. And this is designed for some of the world's largest organizations. We have over eleven thousand employees, and we're definitely growing revenue wise. You know, fiscal two thousand nineteen. Was at uh, something like 2.82 billion, and that that was an increase of uh, almost 32 percent year over year. Wow! Workday, yeah, we're growing. It's just it's been a, it's been fun, and and I've just seen I've experienced that since I started in January of uh, 2018. So we we have six core values: employees, customer service, innovation, integrity, fun, and profitability. And it's really important to to note that employees come first. That's our number one core value, and maybe right. that's why it's so much fun for me because that's where the focus is. Right. Uh, I, I have a team. I'm responsible for maintaining a high level of customer satisfaction of customers in Canada. 
Right. I started, in, well, I think I mentioned, I started January 2018, and I have both organizational responsibilities and direct line management for the first time in my in my corporate career. So even though in Oracle I was a, a director, um, you know, this is the first time where I'm actually leading a, a larger larger team with direct line responsibilities. And right. the good thing is, is that I was set up for success at Workday, or have been set up, because I was provided with some the the best or the world class management training, some very extensive training. And this made sure that I understood and was able to embrace our company culture and our core values because I want to provide the best possible environment for, for my team and for, uh, for all my coworkers. That's awesome. That's awesome. No, I, I, you know, I've, I've heard a whole lot about what, what they create and uh, the values that they have and the leadership orientation that they have at Workday. They really are a world-class company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with the title Customer Success, what we do is we're, we're customer advocates. Our, our focus is on helping customers adopt what they already own and to make, it, you know, make sure that when it comes up for renewal, there's no surprises, no issues, that they're getting full value of, of the money that they're, that they're spending. Right. And kind of how does it tie back to student works? I'm getting to practice my, my time management skills, which I had to learn early on. There are days when I can have like eight hours or more of back-to-back meetings. Yeah, get back to your, your laptop. There's you know over like 100 emails and dozens of Slack messages. Yeah. Check my phone. There's some text messages. <laughs> but funny enough, there's never any uh, voicemail because nobody uses voicemail anymore. Yes. Uh, not like the old days. Um, and, and how I manage it is uh, there's a couple things. One is when I'm, I'm really bogged down and, and feeling reactive, I'll intentionally block off times on my calendar, which is kind of counter, counterintuitive. So instead of saying, hey, I'm just going to try to catch up, it's like, no, no, I'm going to back off, block off a chunk of time and make sure that I'm able to focus on strategic activities and, and planning and, and the important stuff. And it goes back to, I know we, we were talking earlier with the Stephen Covey and I, I found yes. a little, you know, with the big rocks, right? And use an example of, um, if, you, if you fill up all the, the gravel and small rocks and sand, there's no room for the big rocks. So you got to do it the other way around. Start with the really important things with your life and don't get drowned, you know, don't drown yourself in all the gravel. Right. Absolutely, and 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 that's a that's a great great reminder again for for our young leaders again just how are we prioritizing the most important things in your life and 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 again you know uh, you know uh, you know turning off your phone and making sure that you're t- taking time to study you know turning off your phone and saying hey uh, uh, you know or I'm going to go separate out some social time with my family or friends or you know or or again time I need to spend on my business, time I need to spend. So it's, it really is being very, very uh, um, focused and not letting kind of the whims of the world take you places, but instead of making strong, powerful choices as you are, son. Absolutely. I love, you know, I love being here because I feel like I'm working with the best of the best of the best. And it's really, I am every day, I'm absolutely honored to be working in this environment with the people that are here. I've had access to most of the the top workday leaders since I since I joined, right. and they are really the gold standard for what a you know. You ever read the book Good to Great? I recommend it for everybody. And and in, the, in that book, they talk about level five leadership, and um, and they they really set that standard. And and with that, I've been able to learn how to manage people. I love my team, and I do anything for them to help them succeed in their careers. And even if it's another area of the company, if somebody wants to uh, take a, a a promotion somewhere else, they they've got my absolute full support. And even if it means losing, losing the team, and if I have to replace them, that's okay. I, I, I care more about their success than um, having to backfill. And uh, and with that, empathy is the most important skill that I, I've had to learn. Well, I, I think I've had the empathy, but I get to practice it. And and I, for me, it's the number one thing to focus on and, and have as a priority. And because you have to be very careful what you say and do, because that can either energize someone or cause fear. You know, one careless comment can cause a lot of a lot of harm and send somebody into a tailspin. And people need to feel safe and work in their environment, um, you know, they need to feel safe in their work environment and in their career. And right. as a manager, as a leader, I need to understand what they need and what motivates them. And truly, I, I really care more about taking care of my team than taking care of me. You know, they come first and I'll take care of myself later. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a real, that's a real breakthrough. I remember uh, one, of our, one of our operators this summer was recognizing that um, and her district manager was trying to help her see that really she was seeing her workers as transactional, really didn't care about them, you know, and her customers as just a way to make money. And they they just had a conversation last week and it was like, I totally see it now. My summer is going to be about my team. My summer is going to be about my customers, you know, and I'm really committed to really getting that. Now I see how selfish I've been. See how that just doesn't work. And and there's just no question this this operator 
is just going to have such a massively more successful summer and career and future, you know, just because again, your team sees that, like, what's your intention? They see it, you know, like, it's not what you say, it's what you do every day, right? And how you act towards them every day, et cetera. So, um, you know, ultimately your intention wins out who you are being wins out in the communication that you're having with people. So. Yeah, and I, I learned I, I learned that I knew that you, you taught me that at, at Student Works, and I think I lost that over the years. And with Workday, it's brought me back to that core value. Yeah, you, know, you, you take care of people, then they will take care of your customers. Yeah, no, and and it's also as well. I think there's there's also knowing it, and then really uh, discovering it a new level, and then a new level, and then a new level, right? And then also discovering it newly, right? Like where it's like. Um, you know, I, I I continue to read new business books. And so often I see them and I'll go, they're kind of rejigged from something else. You know, one of the huge, you know, most important novels of the past or, 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 but it's just a great reminder. Oh, am I doing that? Am I, am I really living that space? Right. So I think it's, it's always, we need to uh, re- re-energize ourselves. And, and again, like level five leadership, I know Simon and I were chatting about this before the, the podcast. I loved his um, one of the things you referred to was when things go well, you know, we're looking out the w- window and, and seeing our staff and seeing our, all the teams and everything that makes it go so well for us. And when things are poorly, not getting the results we want, we look in the mirror and we go, okay, it's it's about us and what can we do and how how, how can we solve it? And again, just earlier I did a podcast and someone was sharing the same thing. Another, another senior leader from our past is, hey, the problems I have. I just look in the mirror, <laughs> you know, so it's just so great that when people really get that. So, um, yeah. so, so, um, so if, if someone were to ask us, you know, what do you do? How, what would be your response, son? Yeah, I, I, I was wince a little bit. It's, um, I know it's a question that everybody asks and, and it's a good way to break the ice. Hey, so what do you do? Yeah. Uh, but I've never really liked that question because our identity is so much more than the work that we do. You know, it's sure. so much more than the, the, you know, way we, we generate revenue and income. And what I care more about is the type of person that you are. You know, what are your values? Are you a good, kind, ethical person? When I meet someone, yeah. this is what's going through my mind. It's like, I don't care how you make your money. I want to know, you know, are you a nice person or not? Yeah. And everybody has a struggle that you don't know about until you get to know them. And um, and even if you maybe don't have the first good impression with somebody or if there's somebody that you're struggling to get along with, you know, I always, it goes back to the empathy is is you need to be aware of that they may be going through some kind of a struggle. And um, some of the greatest people to walk this planet would not be considered successful by North American, you know, first world economic standards. Uh, there, there's some, some really, really good people out there that are really successful, but by different metrics. It's not just about money. And, you know, I would say when you're starting out in your career, you, you kind of need to be all in. You, you got to be completely focused on getting the career started, uh, generate the revenue, but over time you're going to find that uh, at some point you have to back off a little bit, and um, you know other things can and should be layered in, and that will ultimately make you a more useful and, and interesting person to uh, the society. And if you look at you know, for example, I talked about my transition of you know working really hard, starting with nothing, to now having this phenomenal you know weekend and summer getaway, is that I had to learn to let go of my fear. And I had to learn to, you know, how to enjoy life. Right. And, um, and, and so, yes, I had to work really, really hard, but that's not enough, right? I had to balance that out over, over time. Yeah, there are, and there are so many, so many lessons. And, and certainly one of the things that we try to work with with our young leaders in our, you know, student works management program is it's not all about money. Like, that's just one metric to look at your life, right? And, and career, another metric. You know, what about your family? What about your spiritual? What about your meditation? What about your, you know, health? What, there's so many metrics that you can look at, again, how how life is going for you. And and ultimately, you've got to determine it for yourself, don't you, right? Ultimately, really, it's kind of, hey, waking up every day and, and how, 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 how do I see my life? And, and am I winning the game that, I, that I'm setting up? Because really, that's what we do every, every, every day is we're setting up the, 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 the game. And, and, um, so I think that's really, really important. Um, and uh, and again, in the Toronto, the rat race that is Toronto, a lot of times, right? And and you know, obviously living in Oakville, uh, which is which is just you know, um, so you know, what do you do? Like I I live up in you know the Collingwood area, and what do you do means just ski, 
do you bike? Do you run? Do you, you know, do you board? You know, like it's kind of funny how how um, you know lifestyle is a bigger thing. So again, how do you how do you manage that uh, is really great. So so tell me about your family and how that's influenced your life, son. Sure. So I'm husband to one, father to four. I have a dog, two cats, and three guinea pigs. Right. And I have a lot of mouths to feed, and that that's my primary responsibility, and it really affects a lot of the the, the uh, decisions and risks that um, that I can and do take. And um, and with that, over the years, I've seen a lot of different you know, variety of medical issues with um, different family members. And I've learned how to pull my head out of work and pay attention to their needs, um, but at the same time, protect my career. It's, it's kind of finding the balance where right? you got to do what's best for a career, but not at the expense of uh, neglecting the people that need help and support, uh, support around you. And, um, you know, this year I'm celebrating 20 years of marriage. I'm Excited about that. Thank you. Yeah, we originally met back in uh, 1993, and uh, goes back to that uh, student works uh, award ceremony. And uh, you know, and and so someone doesn't usually stick with you for that long, you know, without some ups and downs. So it's it's been hard at times, but it's absolutely worth it. And um, anybody that is is uh, finding themselves in in a rough time is, um, I I would absolutely recommend they stick through it because once you get through working out um, differences uh, is absolutely worthwhile. And, and I love um, being in, in such a long-term, uh, long-term marriage. So as my kids are getting older, I'll have uh, three teenagers in October uh, and uh, <laughs> you know, three to four. And I'll need to have, to, right now I need to figure out how to spend more time with them, you know, being present, emotionally available, uh, especially now today's technology, you know, technology, you got, you know, constantly getting uh, stuff happening on my phone and, and just being to listen to someone. And, and that's something I got to work on. I could probably do better. And, um, and again, it goes back to being away from the cottage, you can shut everything down. And uh, I really want to be emotionally available to them over the next uh, number of years uh, as they go through the, um, all the angst of uh, being uh, teenagers. And, uh, and so is my, my main focus right now for them. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. And, and again, it's a, it's, a, it's a challenge for all of us not to get distracted. And again, put things aside and be present is, is an ongoing thing. I know, you know, so, so what other influences uh, have, you had, have helped you over the years? Um, so I was, uh, I was actually in a Canadian jiu-jitsu program for, um, you know, for 17 years. I was, uh, actually worked my way up to a third degree black belt. I've, uh, I was deer hunting with my father or father-in-law for the last, uh, five years. Uh, I've been training in boxing for about seven years. I had, uh, one amateur sanctioned fight. It was a charity event called Fight 10 Cancer. It was the main event from nearly uh, 700 people. And, and both myself and my opponent, we each raised $12,000 in, awesome. uh, in, in the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation. I, I like to call myself a YouTube train mechanic. Uh, I rebuilt an old ATV from uh, from scratch. At okay. one point, my home office here was full of uh, engine parts. Right. I was far enough not to put it in my living room. <laughs> I kept it in my in my home office. Right. And, um, but all of these things have allowed me to find some sandy in my day to day. You know, getting outside, getting exercise, spending time with friends, and uh, learning something new are all very healthy distractions, and they provide a lot of stress relief and, and wellness, which I found to be very important uh, over the uh, over the years. And what I found is that um, work-life balance doesn't mean everything has to be equal. A bit of a misnomer, but how it, how it looks and how it should change over the years is really based on what life stage you're in, right? Early on, you got to work really, really hard, but then over time, you, you learn how to work smart, more smart than hard, and, and you can back off the, the work and then find some other things in life that give life more, more meaning than just generating money. Yeah, no, I hear you. And, and the other thing as well, just to point out, um, is, is that you know, when you've got a big engine, as clearly you have, right, that was clearly, clearly there in your teenage years, you still do. And now you're spreading it out over other things, right? You know, so so it's like, you're, you're expending your energy in all sorts of different areas, which is which is great. And that's, that's not going to change, because that's just who you are as a, as a person, you've got a high, high degree of energy. So what did you learn from uh, student works that carries you even today? You know, funny enough, actually learning how to read financial statements, um, oh. you know, having, having run a business, you, you, you kind of get it. Uh, I was learning, you know, what a sales pipeline is. You know, just recently I was explaining to somebody what, um, what a sales, sales pipeline is. And my definition was what I learned back in, in, uh, in, in student works, even though I've, I've worked in a sales pipeline for nearly 13 years at, uh, at Oracle. Um, but it was a, my student works experience that really taught me what a sales pipeline is. The right. burden of responsibility of, of having um, having employees, you know, the, their their financial concerns, their need for safety, and, and protecting and monitoring their well being and their mental health. Yes. I've learned what good customer service looks like. Um, you know, the importance of mentors. You know, what it's like to carry a bag, which basically means you have a quota you have to achieve to um, to generate a certain amount of revenue to survive. Uh, right. You know, how to estimate, how to quote, how to sell, and uh, 
and how to present yourself and present something without saying stupid stuff along the way. (laughs) (laughs) I've said a lot of stupid stuff along the way. And I think uh, probably most of it, you know, a lot of it in the early days. And I remember a number of times you'd pull me aside and say, Simon, you'll charm around me. Okay. (laughs) I might not want to say that. Yes, that's why I laugh, Simon. Yes. Yeah, and, you know. It, yeah. I know exactly, exactly. But it's it, and it's great, right? It's like, okay, hey, okay. And it's great to have be in a be in an environment where, hey, that's the coaching. No problem. Hey, we'll watch your back, right? You know, so so yeah. Yeah. And and it, it, you know, I really learned how resilient and adaptable I am and also the importance I mentioned this before, and I'll say it again is how important it is to to work smart and um you know, compared to just working hard, you got to work hard too. But you know, as you get to a point where you learn how to work more and more smart, just life gets a whole lot easier. One hundred percent, absolutely. And 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 again, using that experience, right? Using you know, again, decades of of experience and or or it's years of experience, and just okay, got that. Let's 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 not keep making the same mistakes. Let's learn from those mistakes. So, um, so what? And speaking about mistakes, what mistakes have you made along the way? Probably too many to list all of them, um, and I know, I know we're running out of time. Not trying to dodge a question, but I, I, I think the the biggest thing is uh, I spent a lot of money on stupid stuff. You know, wasted yeah. a lot of money over the years. Uh, you know, I, I think just kind of growing up, or there was always sort of a, a sense that I wanted to look like I was fitting in. I wanted to. Um, I felt like I was being judged on possession. So I've learned how to let that go and not really not care about that anymore. And realizing that the the people that are are you know truly financially secure are not the ones that have all of the material possessions that you see. Yeah. And, you know, the example is I, I have an, an old truck that's uh, paid off and I love it. I would much rather have an old beat up vehicle that's uh, that's paid off. That's reliable, of course. Yeah. And to have, you know, I mean, yes, I could, I could have a, you know, a Mercedes or BMW, um, but I don't want the car payments and I don't feel like I need to have that in my driveway. You know, I really, yeah. really care. Um, you know, and it's other mistakes. I mean, I, I know I look back and, and uh, I definitely could have been a better, you know, better husband, better friend. You know, better father, better coworker. You know, look at all the relationships of the years. I know I could have done better, and I'd like to think I've I've learned, and and certainly things have gotten a lot better over uh, you know over the years. And uh, but I I I, I spend a lot of time reflecting. You know, how can I just be a better better person to everyone else around me? And the last thing is, um, you know, letting myself get distracted by time wasting activities. You know, if you're um, I don't know, just playing a computer game, for example, there's there's no real life skill. It's not benefiting anyone else not benefiting you. And it's just sucking away a lot of time. So learning is really just to focus on the things that are important. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And uh, yeah, no, and I think being reflective and I can tell, you know, and one of the things our listeners really can tell, uh, you know, Simon, by just, you know, who you are as a person is you have spent a lot of time reflecting and looking and learning right from your life, which is really awesome. You know, just, just, and, and, and it's, you know, again, a life lived that's not examined is you know what are we doing? No, let's let's go back and 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 uh, it's it's one of the reasons why you know if you look at happiness, you know, a lot of times people don't recognize this when they're young, but you know most of the happiest people are the oldest people. You know you might go you know like there's graphs showing happiness and they actually start to go up and up and up and and the reason is people have examined what went well and what didn't well go well and a lot of it is exactly what you're speaking about i need to keep up with the joneses or i need to buy mercedes or i need to you know try to fit in when it's just like i am who i am and and and, and kind of accepting that and being happy with that because uh because we're pretty special who we are so what would you like to tell the young leaders listening to this podcast you know um I see a lot of sound bites out there on like Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, and and I would encourage you to go deeper into the teachings of some of the thought leaders who stood the test of time. Uh, like I love Gary Vee, uh, don't get me wrong, um, yeah. but go deeper, right? Yeah. And um, you know, read books, right? Don't you, you're not gonna you're not gonna learn much by sound bites. It'll get you started, but there's there's a lot of really good good content. You know, a lot of the look in. I can see, yeah, books. lots of books, lots of books, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I've read them all. Um, you know, and. Uh, and I think that makes a big difference, you know, whether it's even if it's, you know, if it's electronic online or listen to audiobooks. Yeah. Uh, you can, uh, there's lots of good options out there. So, uh, or different podcasts, uh, longer, longer term podcasts. Um, yeah. You know, but how, I see the key thing is look, how much you make is not something you should measure. Rather, it really should be how much you save relative to how do you live and, and what do you do with it that counts? You know, how much do you use for charity? Um, how much are you saving for a war chest or a new business or investment? And what is your plan to retire? So it's not about what you make, it's about what you keep and what you do with that. And uh, so the ultimate financial goal, and this should be as early 
in your career as, as possible is get to the point where you no longer need to work to pay the bills. Right. We have all those bills covered, the day, you know, day-to-day living. And then because that's when the real fun begins and you really start to pursue your goals and your passions. And so really start with the end game in mind like that and work backwards and, and plan it out. And, um, and, and really with that complacency can really be an enemy to your goals. So if you ever reach a point where you feel like I'm good where I'm at, ask yourself really, or are you just being complacent? Right. And, right. and it, it, you know, maybe you should be thinking about some other big goal or big, big dream. And, um, and I think just, you know, kind of like a you know, final thought on that is, um, you, you know, it's if, if you look at um, and I've listened to some of your podcasts and you talked about uh, wanting to have, you know, a thousand um, thousand millionaires. Yeah, yeah. Thousand, yeah. And, um, you know, and it's I just want to let people know this is a this is a real thing. And, um, you know, I really want to thank you for the opportunity you provided with me, you know, 26 years ago. And I probably would not be here if it wasn't for your mentorship and training. So. Uh, you know, thank you for the opportunity that experience. I mean, obviously, I had to do my part, um, yeah. but you you opened the door and um, and you gave me all the support and help that I needed. And just thank you for uh, getting me here today. Hey, well, you're more than more than welcome, and 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 thank you for for coming in and sharing. Uh, and I know I know I know Simon's uh, come back and and shared at trainings before in the past, and that's one thing that we've done with our alumni, and I know will in the future. And uh, it, it really is amazing. Uh, just just um, you know. Uh, your real success story, Simon, you know, like, like not many people overcome all the challenges that you've, you've overcome, you know, just, just, you know, just growing up in the family environment that you grew up in is, is really challenging. And again, you're just a testament to perseverance and grit and hard work. And then also going and being coachable, right? Going and finding out people who have what you want and going and, Hey, let's, uh, let's go hang around with them. I know you hung around with us a long time and uh, we appreciate that. And, uh, you know, again, thanks for, thanks for spending time with us, um, around all the amazing things you you're, you're creating in the, in your world. So thank you so much for today. Thank you, Chris. Okay. Cheers. Have a great one. Hey leaders. I hope you enjoyed this episode. By now you are aware that we work with ambitious students every single year to not only help them run their first successful business but to further their development as a leader and give them an unfair advantage in the future over their counterparts. It's why starting now and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down their path of entrepreneurship. If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested, visit leaderspodcast.ca slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. And I can't wait to see you on the other side.